Hi, I'm Carol Pope, and you're listening to The Stewie Tunes Show with Tony Stewart and Aaron Badgley. Well, Aaron, we finally made it to Season 4, Episode 1, and we've got a treat for our listeners today. Why don't you tell them about it? Yeah, Beatle fans and John Lennon fans are going to love this, Tony. We have Kenneth Womack joining us in conversation. Uh, For those of you who don't know who Kenneth is, I mean, Beatle fans know this guy. But he's written books about the Beatles, George Martin, two books about George Martin, actually. He's in. He's written for Billboard magazine, Time, Variety, The Guardian, USA Today. This is a renowned Beatle expert. This guy knows the Beatles, and he knows John Lennon. He just released a new book called John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life. Yeah, this is going to be fantastic, so stick around, folks, and uh, we know you're going to enjoy this one. Welcome to the Stewie Tune Show. These are insights and commentary on the music and musicians that shape our lives. And now, let's go back to class with your hosts, Tony Stewart and Aaron Badgley. Hi, guys. Uh, Happy New Year to both of you. And uh, Ken, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Aaron, uh, when he let me know that you were willing to come on the show, I was so excited. And it is fantastic to finally meet you. So welcome to the uh, Stewie Tune Show. I'm thrilled to be here with you guys. Thanks so much. And you know I'm a fan of your work, Ken. And yeah, this is going to be great. So we are going to be talking about uh, John Lennon and his New York City period. So we'll be talking about that period from 1971 up until December 8th, 1980. And it's such a fascinating time in his life. And so um, I was wondering, Ken, what spurred on the decision for him to moved to New York City in 1971. Well, if you'll forgive me for being a little literary for a moment, um, I, I, I come more and more to think about this period uh, in, in terms of uh, the great Russian author uh, who decided that he wanted to become an American author, Vladimir Nabokov, um, who wrote novels in English better than most English speakers. <laughs> uh, and, and he pointedly moved to the United States uh, to soak up the culture and become a kind of American author. That was his plan. And I think that was John Lennon's plan was to come to the United States. He felt like uh, New York was the Rome of his day. And um, if he were alive during the Roman era, he'd be living in Rome. <laughs> so he, uh, he, And Yoko chose to move to New York. Of course, Yoko had lived in the city before during, I guess, her fluxus days, uh, her days as a performance artist um, on that scene in the 60s. Uh, And uh, so it was certainly uh, very familiar to her. Um, But he moved there very pointedly for that reason. He wanted to be a part of that energy. He liked the city and... His ability to do anything or get anything at any time. Do you think if he had the opportunity, Ken, he would have, you know, eventually over those years visited England a few times or because, I mean, he he was kind of stuck there too, right? Absolutely. And, And I think we have to read the situation with his homeland in terms of, uh, the immigration fight. I mean, obviously, um, th- there strike one against him was uh, with the issues involving his arrest back in uh, in England in the late 60s with Yoko. 
And then uh, strike two was um, really being wrongfully uh, tied up in the entire mess um, uh, involving Nixon's reelection and eventually finding himself on Nixon's enemies list. Um, I mean, the whole thing was a travesty, but even more sillier in terms of, of the fact that he had no intention of participating in the ways that they were worried about. Um, but uh, of course, Nixon was famous for his paranoia. And, uh, and so John really was landlocked uh, until 1975 when he finally got some clarity on that situation. So um, I imagine he would have been jet setting all over the place, but um, he simply did not have that freedom. And he, I think to his credit, did not want to back down. Mm-hmm. Oh, was no, he, he did have a, a very important principle to fight for. Oh, mm-hmm. for sure. Was he on their radar right away when he came to New York city, the FBI's radar or I'm, I'm sure he was, but you know, things came to a head in, in 1972 uh, during the campaign for reelection. Um, he was asked to participate in a, uh, uh, in a rally um, I believe in San Diego. I apologize for not having a perfect handle on this at the moment, but uh, it was somewhere in Southern California. And uh, when John heard that it wasn't going to be a, a fully peaceful demonstration, he was out. You know, that wasn't that wasn't his scene. Uh, but it didn't matter. At that point, the die was cast and uh, Nixon's folks had him very firmly on their radar. Uh, and he doesn't get off. <laughs> Even after Nixon has resigned, you know, it's another year before uh, he gets some relief from the legal system. But not only does he not back down, he kind of feels the fire with the Sometime in New York City album, which, which was very political, but also the picture of Nixon and Mao. <laughs> <laughs> sure, he, he fans the flames, but he does it in such um, – for that time and really for now in a kind of gentle way, you know, I mean, um, you know, I'm sure that, uh, you know, those kind of moves would always get under Nixon's skin or people who, uh, felt like they were on the conservative, right. But having said that, you know, most of what he did was, was hijinks. It wasn't even misdemeanors. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, you know, we have to remember the Vietnam war is raging. Um, it's now, and it's what, third president. Um, uh, No one seems to be able to satisfactorily bring a very unpopular war to a close. Um, John is seeing other kinds of injustices um, in the world. Uh, I I marvel, by the way, at reading those last interviews that he did in the fall of 1980 when he was on that media blitz and reading about how thoughtful he was um, about issues before people were talking about white privilege, he was thinking about white privilege, you know, before people were talking about the difference in, um, uh, in the class structure in, in the United States, right? I mean, England has always uh, deservedly um, received a lot of criticism, but he was right there thinking deeply about the United States and what he could see. Uh, so he was often on the vanguard of those issues. Can I ask you a qu- just a quick question, Ken? When, when you talk about those interviews, did you have access to the unedited interviews? Or were you – because I'm, I'm sure there was – he talked a lot that didn't get into the magazines, right? Um, 
I don't know that uh, I, that may be true for the Newsweek interview. I thought we had all of David Schiff's material oh, in the book. Right, right, right. Yeah, and yeah. I've heard. Um, I've been privy to some really uh, some outtakes. It's not all recorded so fabulously that it, it it makes for great listening in the way that some of the other interviews do. But it, it's it's fascinating, and you know we we do have all of the the very last interview with RKO. Um, there is an unexpurgated version of the Andy Peebles material. So, you know, we have pretty good access to, to that material. So I'd like to, um, Aaron, you had mentioned in the show notes, uh, you know, about some of the collaborations that John did, especially in 1974. I mean, he was, he was, uh, really active, uh, you know, before his hiatus, which we're going to talk about in, in segment two, but maybe we could explore that a little bit further. I'd love to yeah. look at that period of his life because just creatively incredible. Well, and, and Ken, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but other than working with David Peel and Elephant's Memory, this was kind of the only time Lennon was really, I mean, there's Nielsen, Bowie, Johnny Winter, Keith Moon. Um, he's, he's working at Ringo, of course, he helped on three Ringo albums. Um, What do you think was behind all that? Because that was very different for him, was it not? He was always very egalitarian um, and not as, um, and I mean, I don't mean this with any critical uh, bent behind it, but he was certainly not proprietary about the Beatles in the way that McCartney would have been Mm. uh, in terms of making sure that they had that very tight four piece creative unit that of course, they both benefited from so very, very much. But John was always egalitarian. You know, if it had been left up to him, um, a lot of people would never have been kicked out of the, the early groups, even the Quarrymen, right? I mean, he was uh, always more communal, whereas Paul was going for better and better players. Now, I, I think history would fall on Paul's side, but what I when I look at that Lost Weekend period and, and even before that, he's starting to work with lots of different people. Because when he would meet someone and and develop an affinity for what they're doing, you know, John Lennon, again, being egalitarian, would say, hey, come on and join us. Let's hear what you got. You know, (laughs) Uh, he didn't he wasn't a a gatekeeper in those same ways. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. Um, He took a lot of chances. Uh, I I think one of the most interesting things about that early period, um, you know, in 70, 71, 72, right all, all the way up through 74, is the way in which he takes a lot of chances in, in, in a fashion that he had not necessarily done too often prior to that, you know, where, you know, he was willing to give something a go. And so when you hear all of that music, um, you know, going from, uh, I guess, Let's even go back a little bit more to Cold Turkey all the way through the rock and roll album when it was finally finished. It's a really interesting and at times uh, uneven and kind of crude palette. But it is interesting to hear this guy, um, you know, with as much talent as anyone in his generation taking those kind of chances. I had a question about uh, because. Uh, you know, obviously, everybody's aware of the uh, the rift that existed between John and Paul. But um, I wonder if you could talk about how John felt about George Harrison's uh, solo success, you know, right out of the gate post Beatles. I mean, George was experiencing such big success. And uh, how? what were John's feelings about that? 
you know, from some of the remarks I've read um, in interviews and the like, he seemed very supportive. Um, in fact, May Pang told me recently that um, one of the really great things about him was he realized that Paul was obviously by by 1973, 74, the guy is a megastar, right? I mean, anyone who remembers the 1970s remembers just the way he ruled that roost and came to rule it slowly over those first years of the 70s is fascinating mm -hmm. to hear. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, he's ruling it in a very competitive period, you know, when you've got juggernauts like Fleetwood Mac and, and the Eagles and everybody else showing up with these, you know, Elton John, right, uh, showing up with all this work. So he knew that Paul didn't need any help, but she said he was always very, uh, May said that John was always really concerned about George and Ringo and, um, you know, making sure that they were getting their due. So, um, you know, for as long as he could, he really never denied them anything in terms of helping them out. I think he was happy for George, you know, it was John. And as we now know from the famous tape from September 1969, it's John Lennon trying to reach out to George and saying, hey, you should have four songs for every album. <laughs> um, so he was he was quite supportive in that way. Unfortunately, at that moment, George, of course, remembered that John hadn't been on some of his songs lately, like Here Comes the Sun, uh, and pointed it out. But, um, you know, and that's the politics of that group. But he was enormously supportive of those guys. And that was true early on, too, right? He would make sure that Ringo had a cut on every album to sing or um, or he would make sure that George did, too. Because if you go way back to Hamburg, um, George and John and Paul split all the vocals mm -hmm. by three. But when it becomes when it comes time for the world beating songwriters to take stage, George very quickly is, you know, a junior member of the team. Uh, but John was uh, I, I think um, we can all look back and be proud of his efforts uh, in their regard. And I think that's why, you know, going back to that final blitz of interviews, John was noticeably and notably hurt by feeling left out of George's autobiography, you know because he had felt like he'd always given uh, as much as he could. I think, I think one of my most favorite, one of the parts in your book, the, your, your new book that made me smile was when John suggested to Ringo, he should do something like Blondie. Right. He said, have you heard heart of glass? You, you <laughs> yeah. guys should try something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk about, right. <laughs> I just, I, I don't know why that put a smile on my face, but I just kept thinking Ringo doing Blondie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't it fun though. I, I love that, and I and he has lots of remarks like that. Um, even to his last, even to his last afternoon, he he loves those guys. He does. Well, that period from nineteen, I, it's so fascinating, isn't it? From nineteen seventy one to to nineteen seventy five. Because how do you go from Beatles to being just you know John Lennon? I mean, it's uh, so so interesting, but. Gentlemen, what do you think? This looks like a great time for a break, and the uh, telecommunications gods here have been friendly to us. We haven't had any... Yes, yes, touch No jinxing, no jinxing. <laughs> so why don't we take a break uh, for our music history moment, and we will be back shortly with Ken Womack. If you've ever wondered why music stores used to put up signs that said, No Stairway to Heaven, well, here's another reason why. On January 23rd in 1991, KLSK-FM in Albuquerque, New Mexico decided to play Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven for 24 solid hours 
to inaugurate their new format change to classic rock. Of course, people were wondering what was going on and police showed up with guns drawn. There were all kinds of rumors swirling, including one that the DJ had had a heart attack. And since this was at the height of the Gulf War, there was speculation that terrorists had invaded the station, since it was rumored that Saddam Hussein was a big Led Zeppelin fan. And on that note, let's get back to the show. You know, I always enjoy those music, uh, those music history moments, uh, Tony, I really do. But we're here with Ken Womack, and we're talking John Lennon, and um, we're going to talk a wee bit about his infamous Lost Weekend, which wasn't so lost because it's pretty well documented everywhere in the tabloids. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I remember as a kid, my mother used to read The Inquirer, and uh, she she just would go, oh, look, John's in the news again. And I'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> So, Ken, you actually took – I was fascinated when I was reading your book that, that you know, you, you you hit that – the whole separation between him and Yoko quite – you really set the context for that separation. Can you just talk a wee bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, I, I have great admiration for Yoko Ono, and as I've said, May Pang is just a wonderful friend and uh, just a first-rate music historian in her own right and is – very uh, has great fidelity for the truth and those sorts of things. So I wanted to sort of draw it down the middle um, to try and help readers understand how we got there. When I originally wrote this book, I didn't want to cover any of this, <laughs> but you know, you can't tell the story of 1980 with not without having first explained how you get there and the lost weekend is part of it. Um, and uh, you know, John John Lennon needed to be kicked out. I don't know how else to put it. Um, he is a husband who behaved badly um, in a very well-documented uh, election night party uh, where he embarrassed Yoko very deeply. Uh, in addition to he was acting up in the studio and really disrupting her attempt to create anything. Um, you know, John, fueled by alcohol, was a was a very dangerous combination. Um, and it would bring out the worst in him. And... Uh, he, he needed to be kicked out. I don't know how else to put it. Now, the saving grace for him is, um, you know, he is uh, accompanied uh, on this journey with May Pang, who is the young assistant who works for John and Yoko. And uh, May uh, is, a, is a, a, a woman who valued family very much, um, is a teetotaler. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, her drink is Coca-Cola. Um, I think it still is. Uh, and, uh, so, um, he could not have been accompanied by a better person and, um, they had their own love story that emerges. Um, but he never made bones about the fact that uh, there was a kind of umbilical cord and I don't mean to under overscore the, the maternal kind of relationship that may have existed, but he was very connected, uh, to Yoko. She called all of the time he would phone the Dakota um, during this period, um, she would uh, keep in touch with Mal Evans, their road manager, who was living out there having his own lost weekend uh, by this point. Uh, Ringo's, of course, on the West Coast. Um, and as as we know, Paul comes through two or three times and sees John Lennon and, and May Pang and Ringo. So um, I, I think it's just an important part of their, their formative years. And 
Uh, you know, to quote Catherine Hepburn, what what family doesn't have its ups and downs, right? And uh, the Linens were certainly having one of theirs. And um, the, the Lost Weekend enabled him to sort of break things for a little bit. You know, if it weren't for the Lost Weekend, um, we wouldn't have a lot of the great music we did. We wouldn't have John, you know, slaving over that album with Harry Nielsen, trying to get Harry in some kind of shape to record, um, which was uh, take some doing. And, and I'm not sure he achieved it because, of course, Nielsen was a legendary alcoholic. Uh, and even at one stage, pretty early on in the sessions, blew out his vocal cords. So, um, you know, trying to take on production work, having contracts of his own that he needed to fulfill, all against the backdrop of the uh, disintegrating partnership, right? Because uh, they were still in front of the high court uh, back in the UK working towards some kind of uh, dissolution. But of course, that had to be immediately replaced by a new way uh, of charting a course for the future for the Beatles which they do in short order. So there's a lot going on, uh, but it, it's such an important reason for why, in addition to the immigration fight that we talked about earlier, this guy's just exhausted when 1975 rolls around. Mm -hmm. It's like, um, it's like a three act play, right? Uh, really uh, that whole period in the seventies, that's how, when Aaron and I were planning the episode, we were thinking it, it really is. This is like the middle act of the play and uh, setting the stage for what appeared to be a redemption story uh, later on. But, uh, you know, we all know how that ended. But Sure. And, you know, I, I like that three-act structure because the music is very different uh, mm. to a certain extent. You know, the first part of it, you've got these just world-breaking albums in Plastic Ono Band and Imagine. Right. And then, you know, sometime in New York City, uh, it's not that I discount that because it's obviously part of his discography, but, it, you know, it clearly had uh, a political motivation behind it. So it's hard to pigeonhole that with one period or another. And then you have this middle period, right, with uh, the music on mind games and rock and roll and walls and bridges, some of which is really crunchy in a guitar sort of funky way like the, the 1970s. And then you've got this very distinct last period where he's obviously going to another place. And I think you're right. I don't think you could have had that that period without going through what he went through. And it, but you know what always makes me laugh? And Ken, you and I talked about this. Lots of artists these days take five years between records. It's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but in, the, in the 70s, it was a huge deal, right? It was. I was uh, talking to Ken Mansfield today, the Apple executive, and I'm always blown away when I talk to folks like this or Ethan Russell, you know, the photographer who took some of those legendary fig, uh, photographs or some of the rock journalists, right, in the late 60s and early 70s. They were all inventing their jobs. Hmm. You know, it's not like uh, Ethan Russell wakes up and says, you know what, I'm going to go to rock photojournalism photo school. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to have a career or, or Jan Winter says, I'm going to have a career, a full career in the rock music press, you know, um, and, uh, or, or these other guys who become record executives. John Lennon's the same way. You know, he's charting a course uh, as a real pioneer. You know, when, when when Pete Townsend wrote the lyrics that Roger Daltrey sang about Hope I Die Before I Get Old, they 
never had any intention, uh, first of all, of living to be 40, and much less, as Pete Townsend said, the last time I saw him, back when we used to go to concerts, uh, <laughs> you know, he said, every time we do this song, I can't believe I'm sing- we're playing it in my 70s. Yeah. <laughs> he said, it's like an out-of-body experience. So John Lennon is, you know, just like Paul McCartney's doing it on his own journey, they're inventing this stuff. And by the time John shows up, for segment three, right, act three, and he's he's making an album now as a father. You know, so if you think he was tired when he got to 1975, what do they do? They have an infant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, he – by the time he arrives at 1980 and he's starting to write about what it means to be a guy who's just started his 40s with an infant, an infant uh, and he's trying to chart a course in the 1980s, that's completely, as far as rock goes – it's uncharted territory. People didn't write about that. They weren't around, right? (laughs) You know, until 1966, the Beatles would think about, you know, what sort of jobs they'd have to get later, right? Because nobody thought this was something you'd do for a career. It's it's that famous question, right, Ken? What are you going to do when the bubble bursts? (laughs) Well, that's right. You know, are you going to sell shoes? Do you save money so you can buy... Uh, didn't they invest at one point in the mid '60s so that Pete Shotton could yeah. uh, get Supermarket. a chain supermarkets? Supermarket. Yeah, I, I thought so, right? So, <laughs> you know, and they were good friends with Terry Doran, you know, the, who was in, uh, I believe he was in the automotive trade or the automobile uh, trade, according to the line in the song, right? So, you know, they were they were talking to people that could be the source of future careers for them, uh, and and so here he is in the 1970s. You know, people had charted marriages that that hit staggering lows, like clearly the Lennons did in in 1972, in 73. But they hadn't done it as full blown rock stars with (laughs) stardom. You know, John and Yoko enjoyed a very uh, upper echelon, rare air kind of stardom. Well, this um, this looks like a great time to take our second break, and uh, we're going to do uh, a segment uh, all about famous birthdays on this date. And then when we come back after the break with Ken Womack, we're going to be talking about the third act of John's three-act story, which was his return to the recording studio and the events leading up to December 8th, 1980. But we'll be right back. Here's a famous birthday that's close to my heart. On January 23, 1910, famous jazz guitarist Django Reinhardt was born. When he was 18 years old, he badly burned the third and fourth fingers of his left hand in a house fire. Doctors suggested that he play the guitar to keep the other fingers nimble, and that was where he developed his famous two-fingered style. Sadly, Django Reinhardt passed away in 1953 from a stroke, but his influence will be permanently etched into the history of jazz. And now, back to the show. And we're back with Ken Womack, and uh, we're going to be talking about Act 3 here of John's New York City period. Um, And Ken, this, uh, like I was saying earlier, I love the fact that uh, this is the redemption story and uh, really coming into his own, like you were hinting at uh, in the last segment. And he made the decision to sign with uh, Geffen Records. Go ahead, Aaron. I was just going to say, so so the five years, and you document this so well in your book. I mean, he's he's seemingly, I, and I used to hate this, and I'm sure you do too, the underground period, he went underground. He never went underground, did he, Ken? 
No, no, he was hidden in plain sight. You know, he was walking around town. He, uh, by his own admission, he had some periods where he just was feeling out of it. Um, you know, we all go through our moments. Uh, he, you know, again, as I said in segment two, I guess, uh, they have an infant. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he's 35, she's 42, and they have an infant. Uh, and uh, life is very complex you know it goes from from uh, a lot of freedom to to that being washed away now as john would say they had servants to help out so there's no doubt about that but um he wanted very much um uh, to be present uh, for sean in ways that he felt he had not been for julian understandably so um you know, he, he went from a period of, of uh, stress and flux, um, and if he were going to settle down, it didn't last very long, right? So they were very busy people. Um, once the immigration uh, cloud had been lifted, they could travel, so they went to Japan a few times to see her relatives. They would stay for a month or so during their visits. They went to see the pyramids, <laughs> you know, um, they just suddenly had levels of freedom they didn't have before. So they took advantage of it, but, uh, they were raising, you know, an infant into a toddler and ultimately, uh, at least as far as John was concerned, a five-year-old. So he was hardly hanging back and, and, and keeping under wraps. He was a part of the world. He had just pointedly decided not to make music. Um, he liked the fact that he didn't have a contract and he wasn't beholden to anybody. And this became a big theme that you really have to spend some time reading his uh, interviews in that media blitz we discussed earlier. If you do, you start to notice um, John not wanting to think of songwriting as as having to be a trained seal, right? Uh, and he would make the point that if you said to him, please write a song about this, and he were you know, willing to do that, he could do it. Um, he'd done it very famously for Richard Lester, right? We need something called a hard day's night. <laughs> um, but John preferred uh, art to be more happenstance and fanciful than that. He liked when ideas would seemingly come to you, pardon the pun, across the universe, right? He liked that idea of images and ideas coming to you. And there's, I think there's no better example than the summer of 1980 when he's in, uh, he's in Bermuda and Yoko has written, um, let me count the ways. And she wants him to write, uh, a response song, uh, with Robert Browning to her moment of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And, you know, John begrudgingly goes off, but then it happens. He's watching TV and he sees somebody quote lyrics quite directly from, uh, the poem by, Robert Browning, Rabbi Ben Ezra, which becomes grilled with me. So in a way, he got what exactly what he wanted out of that experience. So he didn't like the idea of having to be this this trained seal, or as he liked to say, a performing flea, right? And instead, uh, to to create art. <laughs> it's going to sound like 1877. Art for art's sake. Thank you, Walter Pater. You know, <laughs> I was thinking 10 CC, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you you raise a point, Ken, and you and you didn't during this time, and and this goes for all four Beatles up until December eighth. He had no security guards around him. He's just walking around New York City. He's in Central Park. He's going to restaurants. He's going to this local delis. 
And I'm, I'm amazed that these four people, McCarty is on the tube in, in London, you know, no bodyguards. And he still is occasionally on the tube, as we've seen Recently. in photographs. Yeah. yeah, a couple of years ago, I saw him on the tube. Ago, yeah. yeah, he was somewhere over near Notting Hill. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, I, I, and for all we know, you couldn't see the bodyguard sitting, you know, two rows over or something. Fair enough. But Fair enough. Anyway, um, yeah, and, and this was a great pleasure for me in working on this subject and going back to the 1970s and 1980. The world was just so different, right? I mean, it uh, you still only had four networks. Some markets had cable, right? John had cable. We had cable. Um, John and I were probably watching the same cable, right? So it was just a smaller, mm-hmm. seemingly safer world, although New York certainly had a very different crime rate during that period than it has in recent years. You know, the data alone suggests that it's a much safer place to live and work. But what what I mean is, you know, people live differently. You know, people didn't have entourages, uh, you know, in, in the same way that they do today. And uh, that's just not how folks like that live. Now, because of his murder and several other stars in subsequent years, you know, that world changed pretty quickly. Um, and people... Uh, not just stars, right? Began to think of of security in different ways, um, and and their lives would be defined very differently. You know, I mean, I I remember <laughs> near Houston in the late seventies, people would leave their keys in their cars. You know, ridiculous as it sounds, um, there just was a, a certain level of naivete uh, that existed in the way people saw the world. What they were worried about was not being murdered. Um, or attacked, but rather Sean being um, Sean being kidnapped. Right. You know, so when they would talk to security experts, um, they would the first thing they would go to is you've got to watch your kid. That's this is the seventies, right? When things were stolen, hijackings. <laughs> um, you know, air, air, uh, airlines had ways of dealing with with hijackings. Right? They would go to Cuba and they would be ready for the layovers. You know. The captains would look forward to it because they had a whole plan on how they would. I was just reading this in Rolling Stone the other day, you know, uh, about the ways in which people lived. It was different. You know, people, if they're going to do anything, they're going to steal something. They're not going to hurt you. Mm -hmm. So I was um, uh, I wouldn't mind talking about double fantasy for a second. And I was I was reading uh, one of your posts uh, on your website about double fantasy and the the reactions to that. in the press worldwide, uh, really interesting because I'd never read those reviews before of of that album. But uh, maybe you could talk about that for a little bit. Sure, and and as you probably know, some were suppressed after the murder that were going to come out. You know, um, but yeah, people tended to react uh, either lukewarm or in some cases caustically negative Mm -hmm. about John's work. Yoko got some nice notices for really, when you listen to it, she sounds exactly like the new wave of the time. Um, I I host a thing here at at the university called record club and we did talking heads last year. And uh, you know, when you listen to Yoko's music and their music from the same period, it's it's very similar. It's striking. Mm -hmm. Um, so she was certainly dialed in in a different way to what she was hearing. 
Um, but John Lennon, being a guy who really writes about his experience in a deeper, more textured way, is writing about being 38, 39, about to be 40, and having an infant, and mm-hmm. going through the ups and downs of marriage in, in a period in which the world is suddenly realizing, hey, we're heading to a statistical place where half of all marriages will end in divorce, <laughs> right? That was a new thing, too, around 1980. So um, I... I think when you look back at it, you see that the critics just weren't ready for that kind of conversation with a rock star. You know, John Lennon was supposed to be the cool Beatle, the edgy Beatle, um, and uh, and people really go to him often. And you see it today on Facebook or various kinds of social media. It still happens where they want him to reflect back this kind of edgy coolness. But, you know, he often didn't do that. He was often very sensitive. He was very caring. Um, Writing this book, I I have countered dozens and dozens of people who ran into him in New York, and they'd want to talk about the Beatles. He'd want to talk about them. (laughs) And and he wasn't doing it uh, for any reason other than he liked and was interested in people. Uh, So I, I think he came along at a time with that record and uh, in fact, one critic, as you'll recall, wrote that. He said, I don't want to hear about how great his life is, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, and of course, John was not always saying his life was great by any stretch on Double Fantasy. That's just how that guy reacted to him. And I think I think also hindsight, right? But, but you know, we were talking, Ken, about the fact that the album Out of the Gates didn't do initially as well as one would think, Right. That's right. And he only lived for three weeks with that record in circulation, you know, which is staggering. Um, So um, he doesn't really. uh, Well, we we will never know. Right. We'll never know. Um, uh, We'll never the world will never know the effect of what would have happened if John isn't murdered and uh, the, the, the cover from Rolling Stone, which was racy enough for 1980 if that comes out right that that's going to sell some units um a tour would have sent that record through the roof mm-hmm. um and of course by that point uh the 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 acts we would later call dinosaurs like queen and, and paul mccartney and wings right december 1979 what are they doing they're going on the road mm-hmm. um it's a pretty short trip especially when it gets to tokyo <laughs> but they went on the road you know so the point of this is he did need to tour behind that album and and I think he would have seen a, a much a much bigger level of success. What I love about him in this period though, and I want this for everybody who's on their own life's journey, which should be everybody, is you know, he grows into making that album. He has to get the level of confidence you need to be able to to make his part of Double Fantasy happen. And it takes a couple of years, right? Fortunately, one of the first songs that he writes is Watching the Wheels. So he knows he's got this gem in his pocket. Uh, so everything else starts to build around that as that song goes through various nuances uh, and, and shifts and different phases over a, you know 18 months or so. Um, so he has that in his back pocket, but he really grows into it. So you know, he's aware of, of some of these notices. I think it was Bob Gruen. He said, uh, Bob said, people are calling you M-O-R, middle of the road. And John said, that's okay. I'm going right down the middle of the road to the bank. You know, so he was making light of it. <laughs> he was quote. making, yeah, and, uh, yeah, Bob, and we're so lucky Bob was there, you know, uh, not only as John's friend, but being such a good historian of the period. Um, 
you know, he was taking it in stride. There were periods in John Lennon's professional life where that would have sent him up to his room uh, into depression, but it didn't. He was taking it in stride. And what you see with that last week when they're working on walking on thin ice, he is now laser focused on what's next. Mm -hmm. And I found that a lot of artists like that uh, often are, you know, they, they finished the last composition. It's out. The new book that he put out was called Double Fantasy. He's writing the next one. Um, and when they start to bring Walking on Thin Ice together, you know, as, as you both know from uh, reading about that period, he is obsessed with that song. Mm-hmm. He is listening to it constantly because he can tell, you know, we've done a lot of work together, but this is different. And in those last hours, maybe the last hour of his life, he looks at Yoko and he says, this is the direction, you know, and that's what to me is, is the great closing act. Unfortunately, he doesn't know it. He is already thinking about what's next and he's excited about that. And, you know, it doesn't matter that the world may be having a, a negative reaction to double fantasy, you know, that was a, a real expression of how he was feeling and he enjoyed doing it. And that was enough. And that looks like a great place for us to uh, bring the uh, interview to a close, you know, the, the tragic ending. I could talk uh, all night. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's a whole, you know, it could be a whole other topic for another episode, but those tragic events of December 8th. But uh, like we said earlier in the show, you know, it really seemed to be coming into his own and, and hitting 40 and hitting his stride. And uh, Ken, um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show tonight and giving us, uh, giving yeah, thank up your you time. Thank you so, so much. It's been, oh, I loved it. I thanks so much, fellas. Okay, Ken, now that the uh, official interview is over, uh, Aaron and I, since we are coming up to that age where we are rapidly going to be becoming grumpy old men, uh, we decided to introduce a segment called, uh, Get off my lawn, because as we were chatting earlier uh, before this season started, uh, we were complaining about a few things, and we realized, oh my goodness, that's exactly what we're becoming. So, Aaron, I I promised you you could have the first uh, Uh, crack at it for Get Off My Lawn, so uh, take it away. So before I start, I just want to say that I'm not putting anyone down, and I know we're in the middle of a pandemic. I understand that. But does it really take three months to get a record from the UK to Toronto? Okay, look, I ordered a record in November. I think it's (laughs) going to be here in mid-December. It's January the 15th. It turns up at my door. I get an email saying it's in Mississauga. For those of you who don't know, Toronto is next door to Mississauga. It's been there for four weeks. I'll go get it. Please, let me get this record. (laughs) I've been waiting and waiting. I go on Discogs. I find this great rare George Harrison single. I just want to get it. Really? Does it take three and a half months? And that's not the only one. My wife today just got her Hanukkah gift from her cousin in New York City. New York City! It's not, you know, the other side of the world. It's And she mailed it December the 18th. We got it today. Guess what? It was food. No good anymore. So, that's my rant. I'm- yes, and you know what? That's perfect. That is a great get-off-my-lawn rant. Yes, so- I had to get that off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> and Ken, I'm glad you're here to listen to this. <laughs> well, I, I'm <laughs> glad I'm here before. in case if I can console Aaron. You know, I, I think we've all become 
right? Just accustomed to you know, <laughs> two day shipping and, and that sort of thing. Right. It is perplexing. I, many years ago, you just brought up a wonderful memory for me. I was, uh, I worked for DHL, uh, in a <laughs> summer job. Yeah. <laughs> DHL. And, uh, Back in those days, this was before um, their chief competitor, FedEx, had even started tracking things, right? It was right around that period. And uh, I was reorganizing a file room for them using my you know, textual English major skills. And uh, I'll never forget coming across this, um, this complaint letter. It was somebody who had sent a package from L.A. to Phoenix. And it had taken three months to arrive, <laughs> which is not good in the world of overnight shipping. That's bad. <laughs> and uh, and the person was very artful in their letter. Um, and we gave them a full refund, as you'll, you'll hear. He said, I could have taped my parcel to the back of a sick, dying dog and pushed the dog in the direction of Phoenix and it would have beaten your service. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. <laughs> the wonderful cadence of a sick dying a sick dying dog could beautiful. have gotten that George Harrison single to you. That's Much beautiful. <laughs> and you know what? I'm going to add to the rant just to make the trifecta here. So this is about my computer. Aaron, you know I have the new computer here for for doing the show and I was watching Apple's website I bought it. I was going to buy it. And then I decided I was going to wait a couple more days because I was getting paid from a gig. Of course, I wait two more days and find out it's going to be a month. Two days earlier, I could have gone down to the uh, Rito Center and picked it up yeah, that exactly. day. Not now. Yeah. No, not now. It's a month later. It's like, geez. But anyway, um, that is our get off my lawn moment for tonight. And uh, Ken, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank we really you so appreciate much, Ken. you uh, it's such, being it's here. It's always a treat to talk to you. Uh, thanks, fellas, and uh, and I will definitely, I will definitely stay off of your lawn, Aaron. <laughs> no, you're always welcome on my lawn, always, always. Yeah, you Please. say that, <laughs> but your rants, I don't know. <laughs> That's yeah. That was that was well done, sir. That uh, the inaugural one, very well done. Anyway, thanks, uh, thanks very much, Ken, and uh, see thanks, you later. Tony. Thanks, guys. Good night. Good night. Well, what a great chat that was, and uh, what a knowledgeable guy! Knowledgeable, nice guy, and I could just, you know, it could just keep talking, right? He's, uh, he's, he's fun to talk to. Oh, for sure. And I'd never met him before uh, we'd had our chat, so what a pleasure! And I'm so yeah. grateful that he came on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ken. And you know, folks, we've got a great season planned for you. So, the best way for you to stay up to date on all content for the show is to subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Subscribe just means you click the button. There's no commitment other than you get news right away whenever we drop a new episode. So if you want to keep up, that's the best way. Well, Aaron, I guess we'd better call it a night. But uh, as always, it was a real pleasure. It was indeed. You know what? It's good to be back. It is fantastic to be back. I I always enjoy the break, but I was getting pretty itchy to be back, actually. (laughs) Me too. Me too. So until next time, folks... Stay safe, be well, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Stewie Tunes Show. Follow us on social media or visit us online at stewietunes.com. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to click subscribe.